You're listening to The Onset of refreshing, inspiring, and relatable outdoor stories and conversations with your host, Elizabeth Brownell. The Onset Podcast, part of the OKS Podcast Network. Think I can fly. Think I can fly. Right, welcome to episode four of the Onset Podcast. This is a really special episode to me because this is my first in-person episode. So I'm here with Brent Stubblefield from Joiner Die Knives. Thank you for being here. Yeah, um, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, for sure. I've had the pleasure of meeting you, I think once before at the, it was the One Shot Dominion um, Turkey Hunt hosted mm-hmm. by um, Virginia DWR. I mean, we had a really good conversation and I knew Kind of in my mind at that time, the wheels were turning and I was like, I want to do my own podcast. So I knew, you know, you're local in Richmond. I'm in Montrose. It's about like an hour 20. And I was like, this is a conversation I would love to have, you know, on camera, in person, recorded. So I'm happy to be here. Join or Die is a custom knife company. I'll let you take over. But essentially, you know, they make hunting knives, culinary knives, including like oyster knives, everyday carry knives, heirloom pieces, historical reproductions, hatchets. You guys even offer classes on how to make the knives. And now you guys are on YouTube as well. I recently watched the one on how to sharpen a knife. I have the privilege of carrying um, the field mate and I haven't harvested an animal since y'all gave it to me. So I've basically just been using it in kind of like everyday scenarios, especially like fishing, but you know, fall's coming up and I'm definitely ready to put it to use. But you know, how did you get started in knife making and what kind of inspired you to start Join or Die? Yeah, well, it's going to be 10 years coming up this spring. So we'll have a big party here for that. But you know what? I just did it as a hobby. I, you know, as a, as a person that's always been interested in the outdoors, I like to mess around with like uh, building a muzzleloader kit here or, you know, just like the kind of like cleaning and, and maybe tweaking you might do on a firearm. And I also, being a contractor, was doing some carpentry hobbies. And when I tried making a knife, I think I wanted to make a patch knife from muzzleloader. Um, I just realized that all of the things that I liked were combined in a knife. So the woodworking, metalworking, leather, as artistic as you want to be or as scientific and accurate and milling machines. And, um, it was, it was really interesting. Um, everybody nowadays, it seems like that likes to make things. It's a little ADD. And so it, it lets you just kind of have that squirrel brain and still focus on one thing. And then I, as I did that a little while, and I, I also put my energy into other types of, uh, craft hobbies. I realized that if I didn't focus on one thing, I wouldn't really ever get that good at anything. So I decided to kind of sacrifice working on those other things to just work on the on the knife thing. And then, yeah, some things like, you know, um, processing. The first time I was able to process a deer with a knife I made was absolutely just like life changing. So special. Cutting my kid's umbilical cord with a knife I made or, you know, all these kind of things that like create that they make this object that was pretty cool into something that is an instant heirloom. It's always going to be important yeah. now. And knives do that really well. There's other things in our lives, but um, those knives, I think there's a really intimate connection because we tend to carry them on, in, you know, on our bodies and, and they're an extension of our hand. There's something about the, the use of knife that goes back to one of the first human tools, stone, all the way to now. There's just, there's something a little bit more deeper about knives in my, you know, 
the way I look at it. And I, I find that that really resonates with people too. So that's kind of how I got it started. Did it on the side. I, I like to joke that I fell back on my hobby or like, you know, people say, you know, always make sure that you have a career to fall back on if you want to try something risky. Well, I was just not great at like making money as a carpenter, as a, as a, con a contractor. So actually when that kind of fell apart, I had my knife making to fall back on and that ended up working out better. And so here we are, we've kind of built it to, you know, I've got a few people working for me. I've got a big community shop um, here, kind of right downtown Richmond. Yeah, that's awesome. I can't believe you cut um, the umbilical cord. That's crazy. Like, that's absolutely that's an heirloom. Cool. Like, that's a, like, I did this. And now as your kids are growing and I met your kids at the mm -hmm. dinner as well, getting them in this process, I bet, is a rewarding thing as well. Yeah, so we used a high carbon high carbon steel on that, which can rust. But what we did was we, we didn't wipe the blood off. We let it dry. And so yeah. that's going to etch into the blade. No so way. you'll be able to see that. Oh, that's so sick. Yeah. So I do want to talk about kind of the hunting and, and fishing aspect. I know when we talked before, you mentioned you grew up fishing major majority, right? Mm -hmm. But you did a little bit of hunting, but it wasn't until you were in your 20s, which is kind of when I started hunting as well. Um, talk about a little yeah. about that. What was that like? Yeah, I still consider myself also a rookie hunter, and um, <laughs> I'm 42 it. now. I think I so yeah, growing up on the Gulf Coast, so it was like a lot more about fishing. You know what I mean? And the um, the saltwater fishing opportunities were just so much more close to inshore. You know, in Virginia, I've noticed that to really get out there on some big fish, you got to get out there, and you get and that means you got to have money. Mm -hmm. It's just it's, it's a expensive thing, I think. For sure. um, and you can get on a party boat you know, down there. And I don't know how it is now, but in the nineties, you know, 40 bucks a person or something, and you'd be on limit red snapper. And the limits were big in the nineties. It was, you know, 10, 12 a person, these stringers of just amberjack. And then, you know, just a lot of Alabama's got a lot of great freshwater too, lakes and ponds. And my, uh, my grandpa lived on a pond. I mean, sorry, my grandfather lived on a lake in central Alabama. So we just did that a lot. And I, my dad took me hunting and we never, I never saw deer hunting. Um, but he took me a few times in Alabama when he was really into bow hunting in the nineties and, you know, it didn't work out, but we just weren't a, a family that was obsessed with it. It was just part of the culture there, yeah. like kind of like that. So really I just, you know, without going, cause it can become a long story, but I ended up living in Chicago, but, uh, the inner city mission that I was working in had some property, rural Illinois property. Mm -hmm. And so I, we were actually able to go out and hunt there and fish and stuff like that. And I never killed a deer there either. And I, you know, I had a lot of mishaps. I was just trying to figure it out on my own. And then I came to Virginia. My father-in-law, the first day, took me out, put me in the right stand. He kind of, we, we went out after daylight and he kind of did that thing where he walked around in case he could maybe push some deer yeah. my way. And I, and I killed one with a muzzleloader just the first yes. morning. Yeah. And it shows the power of a mentor. Like, I mean, obviously there was, you know, hunting, you're never guaranteed. But that first time I went on the back 40 with you know my father-in-law he was able to put me on deer and then just getting getting a harvest getting a kill under my belt and and being able to process the deer and everything like you, it takes a few you know you got to get kind of used to it then all of a sudden some of those mishaps that i was making hesitating too long sometimes you have a shot for a few seconds and that's it and if you can't make it your mind then you're not you're going to miss out on the opportunity so um Having like him and some other people now as hunting mentors has been absolutely really important, but I still don't have that much hunting experience. I mean, if I'm going to, if like any duck hunting or turkey hunting I've done, it's been when somebody was willing to take me to, you know, access that I didn't really have. And that means access as in like 
well, maybe it wasn't private land, but also like if you don't know where to go, what to do, you basically don't have, it's the same as not having access. Yeah. So you got to figure out how to get out there. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the, just my background story as far as hunting. Um, I'm still having a lot of fun accidents and stuff, but also a little bit of success here and there too. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like the important thing about hunting is like, even in all that time you're spending and I'm, you know, again, the whole Ricky Hunter thing and I'm, I'm really good at it is I just spent so much time and I don't harvest animals. Um, and it's even in those, like, you know, some people would call that failure. I think I try to stay on the more positive side mm -hmm. of it. It's like, I'm always learning um, what I did wrong, right? So, but I think the weird thing about hunting is in those opportunities, when you do have, you know, the interactions with those animals, it's like, that's when you're like truly learning mm -hmm. either from your success or from your failures. So when you're not getting those, um, you know, opportunities a lot. That's also kind of a process as well. Do you hunt public land? I, I have okay. here and there. I mean, like we eat a lot of venison at the house. So mm -hmm. we usually, you know, between my whole family, you know, we'll, we'll hunt and, and usually take, you know, four to six deer and then split it all up and everything with the whole family and mm -hmm. three boys, we need a lot of venison. So, yeah. you know, the main focus there is on getting that extremely high quality meat. And mm -hmm. it's really important. So we're meat hunters. Yeah. Um, and then though it's like turkey season is really fun, but we kind of will go here and there. Um, general, like I mentioned, when I go on public land, it's usually when I can get up with somebody that has more experience with me that will take me yeah. to those places. And I'm interested in doing that more, but I will tell you, it's very difficult to, especially in deer season, when you have, you know, a place that you're really familiar with, um, private land, it's really hard in the popularity of public land. That's, that's come up that, well, the popularity of hunting in a certain subculture of hunting in public land, um, with, you know, the hunting public and mediator and things like that, that's mm -hmm. risen. Um, it makes those of us that have had access to private land kind of go, man, I'm really missing out here. You know, I need to get out there. Mm -hmm. But then you're also feeling like, well, I don't want to like, you know, horn in on somebody else's opportunity that doesn't have that, you know? So the best, like another thing that I can do is I try to get to take people there and mm -hmm. to, you know, go to the private land hunt. Um, but you know, it's, it's fraught cause you know, you have a certain limited amount of time, especially in the really magical moments in November in mm -hmm. Virginia. And you're yeah. kind of going, oh, do I really go to somewhere? I don't know. Um, or do I just go sit in that stand that I know is productive. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to want to do that, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna get outside of my comfort zone more and more. Yeah, for sure. Um, I do want to get into the, I want to let you nerd out on like the knife, the knife talking, because, uh, you know, I've seen, I, you let me choose a field mate mm -hmm. and I was absolutely overwhelmed because I just couldn't choose one. I was like, mm -hmm. all of these are beautiful. You can tell all of these are quality. I feel like as Ricky hunting was growing a little bit and I had so many knife companies reach out to me. And they'd say, you know, hey, pick out what you want and we'll send it to you. And I would go on their site and I'm like, this just doesn't look like quality. Like, this isn't a company I want to work with. I just kept saying no and no. And I was just hoping. I was like, I'm going to find a company that I'm truly going to want to, like, rep. I'm truly going to want to work with. And I, I wasn't expecting y'all to be so close. Like, I wasn't expecting y'all mm -hmm. to be so local in Richmond. But when I did meet you and I did find your stuff and the quality, I think, speaks for itself. But I do want to talk a little bit about, like, the process of knife making. I want to know, you know, let you speak on the materials you're using. Like, why do you choose that? Mm -hmm. And then any, like, specific knife making traditions or techniques that you use? 
and then I do have some more questions, but okay. I'll let you speak on those first. I'll try to start generally with what, what our process is. Thank you so much, by the way. I actually didn't know it was such a contentious, you know, issue about picking a knife sponsor and, uh, we just saw what you're doing out there and was like, I really identify with that. You know, I mean, outside of the sort of like, you know, like I'm not like, like I'm not a woman trying to hunt in a predominant, and no, but I was just like, yeah, but this is, I feel like this is my experience, even though I'm like maybe a typical person. No, I didn't have that. It was, it was like, no, yeah, hunting's hard. <laughs> um, so, so it was just like, Hey, that's cool. Let's do that. So I think the, Making connections, Tom Wilcox at the Department of Wildlife Resources connected us at that, and mm -hmm. that's his whole thing. And I feel I, I, I really like Tom. I want to be like him. I know. Making connections <laughs> between people, yeah. I think, is something that I want to do, that pick up from him and say, that's going to be important to me, too. So we're going to do that. So on the knives, you know, we choose the steels and the, the heat treating process, the grinding processes, the patterns, things like that. There's a, it's a really complex combination of things to, to get to where we are, you know, I'm going to go ahead and grab our field mate. I'll lift my hand while I'm talking about it. Um, and why is this thing, it's a two and a half inch blade. It's short. It's almost like if you're using a pistol, it's like one of those ones where you can't quite get your pinky on it. Yep. But then when you actually do some work with a knife, you realize that you're actually up here, you're pinching the spine you're not, uh, you're not grabbing it like you're grabbing a baseball bat. And I don't want to interrupt you, but I mm -hmm. did when I first got the field mate mm -hmm. and I was posting about it. I had a lot of people reach out and they're like, it's so small. Like, why did you, like, mm -hmm. why do you, why did you want that one? And I was like, no, it's like, you don't understand until it's like in your hands, especially I feel like for like me, mm -hmm. I was like, I love this knife. Like, I feel like a lot of them are either like too large and it felt like cumbersome. Like I didn't trust myself mm -hmm. like using them. And I feel like the field mate for me was like a perfect size. And I absolutely, I love it. So. Well, I say this uh, over and over. I didn't, I can't take all the credit for the design because I, I made something kind of like it. And then I would put a few out on the table that were different. And then one, you know, this one kind of size would get bought more than the others. Okay. And so there's sort of like a, you know, the, the wisdom of the you know the crowd where all of a sudden you know i'm i'm starting to refine the shape just based on what people were buying and what they liked so this is a full tang knife that you can everyday carry in your pocket because it's short enough it's about seven inches total six and a half and then the two and a half inches is actually legal concealed carry in all the strictest places yep. so that was a thought because it is a really good everyday just like box, you know, I call it a tape and twine knife, you know, just cutting open stuff. And then we got out there and we, we field dressed a deer and I was like, oh, this is cool. I could put my index finger right to the point of the end of the knife. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm in control if I'm, and you know, I'm just really choked on it. I've got, I'm really slippery, wet or bloody hands. And I'm not worried about where's the rest of this blade. And then the spine on the knife is about 0.9, um, point, yeah, point 0.9. So like, uh, not, 0.09 that's like under an eighth of an inch thick okay. so it's not super thick but it's thicker than a lot of like you know little pocket knives and stuff and we just find that like i've kind of you know when i carry these i'm really rough on them i beat the crap out of them because i'm just going well i don't care if i break my own i, I want to know though i mean people get out there they're going to do stuff that they, they know they probably shouldn't mm -hmm. or so what'll happen so um we're finding that you know just for some reason it came together as a design and it wasn't just me. I was listening to sort of the input. Now, the the steel that we use on Fieldmate is uh, Nitro-V. We used to use AEBL. They're very similar steels. Stainless steels just have all kinds of names. They're not, it's not 
lot of sense in that. So it's just kind of what the manufacturer would call it. So 440C was and is a good stainless steel that's been around for a long time. But because it's been around for a long time, it's no longer sexy to use. It's like you got to use these like really new crazy steels. And they, they may have greater abrasion resistance and they may be more stainless um, than 440C. But whether it's high carbon or Damascus or stainless steel, whatever you use, your heat treat, your edge geometry, the design of the knife is far more important than the alloy. Because I've seen people get these really expensive alloys, really expensive steels, and without any skill, they're like the, it's not gonna work out. The heat treat's not gonna be right. So even though it's a nice steel, it's not gonna perform like it could. And then even if it's like heat treated perfectly, cause some people send them out to these professional heat treaters, if it's a brick and it's supposed to be a slicer, it's just not gonna pass through the material. I mean, there's so many things that make a knife good other than the alloy. But we do love our Nitro V or ABL, both of them are really good. The Nitro V, honestly, I think that it lays flatter for me and it's less warpy and it grinds a little easier. Sometimes when we when we choose uh, materials, we're choosing them actually because they're better for our process and they're, you know, the, the end product's gonna be about the same. The Nitro means nitrogen and V is stands for vanadium. So it's a stainless steel, which is iron, carbon, and chromium. Chromium is what makes steel stainless. And then the vanadium and uh, nitrogen are added for other you know, reasons. The vanadium especially gives it a fine grain steel, almost like wood can have a coarse or a fine grain. Fine grain is a tougher steel and a finer edge. And we find that this class of steel is actually sharpenable for the, the user. Mm -hmm. So some of these really fancy steels right now, like Magna Cut, something like you're not gonna be able to get an edge back on that very easily. You're gonna sit there for a long time or you have to buy really expensive stones or something, diamond stones. Mm. I just did a, a video on my Instagram where I went to Harbor Freight, bought a 299 sharpening stone and got it cut in paper um, in you know about five minutes. And we got a good edge holding, but we can use our standard sort of like Arkansas or India stones, just whatever you might have laying around to get it sharp again, even though it holds a pretty good edge. So I'm always looking for that What's best for the user? Um, you know, Nitro V has the highest toughness to hardness ratio of any stainless. Hardness is your edge holding, but if it's too hard, it gets brittle like glass. So we want that perfect combination of edge holding and also toughness, meaning it won't chip on the edge and it also won't snap the tip off or things like that. So, cause we know that people are gonna use them in situations maybe where, hey, listen, they're gonna have to price something and they're in a situation, they're just gonna use the thing they have on them. And so we wanna make sure that they last. Uh, we do a lot of, most of our high carbon, we're gonna be doing stuff like our forged knives and stuff that forges a lot better. But our bushcraft knife is high carbon because people like to strike ferro rods and stuff. So high carbon is a lot better for that. And the grind is very different. So. The Fieldmate is a smaller knife and has a higher grind, so it's it, it becomes more thin all the way through. Mm -hmm. And this is just, it's not so thin that it's weak, but it's basically more of an all-around design. A bushcraft knife is kind of just a brick of steel, and then it has what we would call a Scandi grind, or maybe a Sabre grind, and that's just a shorter grind that's ground along with the edge. And the point is that it's kind of a wood processing blade. That's really what it's for. So if you want to split wood, you're not going to split it with a with a really sharp felling axe that's really thin. That'll stick into the wood and won't split the wood very well. Use a maul, which is a super thick, big, basically a, a, 
a sledge with like, you know, kind of a sharp end and it just drives the thing through. So that's why this thing has that short wedge and then a, and a lot of body. You put that on the end of wood when you're camping and just wail away on it with another stick with a baton and just split your wood with it. Or if you're making a notch, sometimes making a notch in wood, you want to use it more like a chisel. And as you know, a chisel, you, you hit it with a hammer. So I can take another piece of wood and I can put this in and I can hammer that down into there and have a lot of control, be a lot more safe because I'm not slinging that knife when I like, you know, for carving. Um, but I basically I have enough steel on the spine on a bushcraft knife to be able to beat the crap out of it. And it's so thick that even though I have a, a thin, uh, the point on this is thin and articulate, but it will not break. What we do with these things after heat treat, after you get them ground before we finish, we'll take them and we'll, we'll hammer them down into the ingrain of wood and just pry it over like we're trying to break the tip off. And it just tears wood grain out. It doesn't do anything to the steel. So the design, whether it's our, our little boot dagger, our bird and trout knife, all of the designs that we make are super special purpose built and they are the result of multiple iterations. And then of course we have a lot of fun making uh, just custom stuff, but you know, I just, I want to be able to make knives that are pretty much going to compete price-wise with like the, the nicer big companies. They're making a lot more money on their knives. I mean, the, I, learning recently with doing wholesale about the sort of like the money structure and stuff, when you pay retail, like the person that made that, whether it's a company or me, is getting like maybe a quarter oh. of that. Because especially if you use a distributor, it's like, well, everybody wants to mark it up double. So it, it like exponentially gets more expensive. So it's really tough. So if you buy from, if you buy a joiner die knife at a store, then I'm going to get a fraction of that. If you buy from me, I'll just get the full price. But that's okay because we got to get out in the stores. I mean, the truth is social media and the internet gets weirder all the time. These companies, they don't even like us. They didn't set these things up for small businesses and they're constantly choking down the flow of who can see us. And so I'm just like, you know what? Let's just start to get some mom and pop stores, fishing and hunting stores out there and just have them carry the knives. And instead of sending my money to like Meta, I will, I will send my money to these stores as in they'll be able to make money on the knives. I like that. That sounds good. Yeah. So um, we want to make the patterns and not every knife be custom because we want to bring the price down as low as possible so that a person can see our knife. They'd be like, man, $200, that's a lot of money. But it's like, well, yeah, but like Benchmade and uh, Spyderco and stuff, it's going to be $200. And, you know, they're a good knife too. And when I, when I, you know, when I put it in that context, it's like, okay, well, I understand the value here. So we, we try to bring these down. We try to do our process. They're still handmade, still hand ground. We do everything in house. Um, but we, we try to do it to where we make enough at, at the same time to get our costs down. So that's kind of, that's kind of my, about as short as I could do. Yeah, for sure. Um, I feel like that did remind me of one of the questions I had. As far as like starting the business, like what were some challenges you've, mm -hmm. you, you know, you faced in the startup or even just now? Like, I mean, a wholesale sounds like kind of a whole different beast, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a big, a big a barrier to entry with knife making is that um, you can technically get a knife done with some really rudimentary stuff. But to get the, the sort of basic standard set of tooling that you need, if you're going to do your, if you're going to have a kiln, a forge, an anvil, a grinder, I mean, it's like at least $5,000 investment. Okay. And then like, and then it goes up from there. So that's a big barrier to a lot of people. And that's actually why we, I opened up the shop here for knife makers to be able to come and basically have a, almost like a gym membership where they can come and use the equipment. 
and just pay a monthly thing. And so that's been something I don't I don't want people to have to suffer like I did. I want them to be able to if they if they're creative, if they want to make knives, I want to be able to do it. Yeah. So I want to have a place where they can come make them here and also answer their questions. Why should they be confused about Oh, what abrasives should I use? It took me like years to figure out what good like abrasive belts to use. And now I kind of have a system that I like. And so I just like to tell people. So the equipment and the materials and stuff, the funny thing is materials are kind of the cheap part. The steel and the handle material is not that bad. It's the overhead and the labor time and everything. So that was one thing was just getting that. And I just did it on the side and I put the money, I just reinvested whatever I sold at like breweries and markets. I would just put it back into buying tools while I was still working. Mm-hmm. So by the time it was ready, I was, I was ready to go full time with knife making if I had the shop all done. Um, so I've never done any, I've never taken like a loan for it and I've ever, I've never gotten in, any investment. And that's been the, that takes me to the next challenge. And that is like cash flow for any small business is really hard, but we are very seasonal and everybody wants their knives at the same time right before Christmas or right in hunting season. Mm-hmm. So like it's summer right now. It's a great time to do podcasts. But like, I mean, I've got a full case of knives in there because everybody's kind of on trips and stuff yeah. and they're not really. And so how to spread out the sales somehow or spread out the work and get that cash flow to be more consistent because I don't care who you are. I mean, maybe you make a lot in, you know, the fall and the Christmas season. It's like, how do you like, okay, I'm not going to use any of that until you know and that way i'll have savings going through you know july and august it's like you're just going to end up using it. stuff comes up you know that you weren't yeah. even thinking of so cash flow and seasonal so a lot anybody making stuff um that's sort of gift type stuff is going to probably end up hitting that seasonal wall that's that's a feast and famine um and then yeah just a lot of you know I've been very jealous of other knife makers that I know that had some buddy from college that's like a business major mm-hmm. that like helps them on the side. Because if you don't have that, mm-hmm. you're just like, I don't know what to do. And I certainly can't afford someone to do this. Yeah. So if people that have like a friend that helps, it's like really great. So that's And I been, feel like the mistakes you might be making in that, like not having that kind of mm-hmm. um, someone to help out or someone who knows the business side of it, like those mistakes aren't just mistakes. Like those are mistakes that are costing you money. Yeah. So I imagine that's like kind of a... It's really just money. I mean, taxes and uh, and licensing and things like that. I mean, so, oh, I got audited. It's like, look, it's just money. Yeah. It's just how much are you going to owe? Mm-hmm. And then what are you going to have to do about it? So, I mean, I just, I really, I make knives because I wanted to do something creative um, that was fulfilling as a career now rather than doing something that I kind of hate until I'm retired. And I think that you're really betraying yourself when you do that. You hear that, everybody out there? Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. I know you have a family. I know you have kids, but like you can't betray yourself. If this is killing you, if it's making you crappy to your, the people around you, cause you're not happy, you yeah. got to figure something out. And maybe it's just getting something on the side. That's really fulfilling. Maybe that's all it's going to be. But, um, there's so many people, look, the government doesn't want you to have a small business. Yeah. They want you in a business where they know how much money you're making. The money is reported for you. You're giving the government a, a no interest loan through all these tax payments that are coming out when you're a W-2 employee. So the tax laws and all the kind of uh, incentives are all to get people to jam into these big corporations to work. And there's really no one. You're disincentivized to work for yourself when it comes to that. Now, there are tax breaks for small business, and that's good. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the difficulty of starting a small business, it's like obvious that that it's it's not one of these things where they're really trying to get you to start it. 
Um, and so I found that like some of the hurdles are, they seem to be built in. And I'm like, I don't care. We're going to figure it out. We're going to do it. So that's, that was a, that was something that I had to have a spouse because I married that was on board for that. And that's not really that common to have my wife say, I'm home with three kids. You want to do what for a living, you know? And I hadn't really proved that I could make good money on it. You know, I was selling them, but it was like, when I go full time, I'm going to have to sell a lot more of these to be able to make a living. And yeah. she was willing to, at least for a time, like make that leap with me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, being a partner, people use the word partner for like their girlfriend or boyfriend all the time. It really bothers me. Is when you, when you really partner with a person for your life, mm -hmm. it's a different thing. And, yeah. and words are important to me. And, and like my wife, Blue, is my partner. Yeah. You know, where it's like, you know, she's my business partner. She's my, you know, the, the running our household and making it possible for me to do something like this. And think about the sacrifice there. You've got yeah. not only the sacrifice of maybe not doing a career, but I tend to get probably more like attention for what I do or something mm -hmm. when raising the next generation is actually way more important than, than what I'm doing. So we, we, I'm bringing those kind of holistic thoughts into the whole business when I'm kind of thinking about like, why do I do this? Like, what, why am I out here doing this? Especially when it's middle of summer, you got nothing to do. Nobody's buying knives and you're going like, oh, I wonder if that DWR uh, posting for community engagement coordinator job just posted up. Oh, I wonder yeah. if that would be good. And then I tell myself, that's just meetings and emails. Tom makes it look fun, but I bet yeah. it's going to be a lot of sitting at a computer. So <laughs> anyway, um, I think I digress really far from the original question. No, it's okay. No, I really like the, the spiel you just went on. A couple of things. I was like, I was trying to keep track of, I was like, oh, I want to talk on that. I want to talk on that. I knew you offered knife classes, mm -hmm. but I did not know you offered like membership. And you said that, you know, you have the knowledge and experience of like the learning and the process of knife making and that you're often sharing that. Um, kudos to you, because I feel like a lot of people, when they find a craft and they become good at it, they know how hard it was to get to that point. And like, mm -hmm. I feel like that's knowledge and information that they try to like pour it onto and mm -hmm. hold on to. And you're not often finding, you know, too many people who are willing to share that. And mm -hmm. you can apply that to any, any kind of craft, whether it's like hunting or knife making or really anything that, you know, you know how many hours you put into it and you could just, you know, let people struggle and figure it out on their own and you're really sharing that and you're offering a space where you're also kind of building a community in that and so um, I think that's kind of a really special thing and I think that's a it's kind of great what you're doing there I appreciate that I think that I just had a choice to make when Forge and Fire started the, you know, the knife making TV show I had been making for a couple of years and I realized oh this is going to get more popular and it was like it's like trying to keep water in a sieve or a colander it's just people are going to find out about this stuff they're going to learn and it's kind of a dying craft or it was before that started. So it's like you want it to propagate. So how do I make myself a resource for people? Because they're going to learn anyway. So it's like be be there for them yeah. type of thing. And I just like, I like community. Some guys make knives because they want to be in their shop alone forever and never talk to anybody. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm more like gregarious and want people around. So I wanted to be able to do that. So that's kind of the point there. The community shop's really for knife makers, unfortunately. We can't really have people that want to just learn and haven't done anything mm -hmm. come in to be a member because it's like, we're all working. We can't yeah. give you a class. While we're, so it's really more for somebody that's kind of been making mm -hmm. and they're ready to step it up and kind of pay the membership and, so, and get access to the more equipment, all that. But the classes have been really cool. I mean, bringing people around for community there. 
um, I, I talk about how people argue about politics on the internet, but like when we sit down at lunch and like order in some food, mm -hmm. like all of a sudden, if something like that comes up, it's everybody's actually really reasonable because mm -hmm. they're in person. Yeah. So I actually, that's one thing that I, when I started this, I was like, no, I'm going to feed everybody because I want us to break bread together. Mm -hmm. And, and over the last like six years, around six years of, of doing classes, I ministered mean, to thousands. Well, I don't know exactly, you know, hundreds or maybe a thousand or so people that have come through and it's always been really cool. Yeah. So that's been Awesome. I was definitely surprised the first time I visited the shop and I think it's a really cool like just a really cool what y'all are doing here um I think every time I walk in I'm surprised by like a new thing that's going on the first time I came here I was surprised by like just how many people you guys had like they each had their own knife and like they're building it and like that's the class and I was like oh this would be such a cool thing to do like on a weekend or something I did want to talk about how you chose the name I think a lot of people make so many assumptions these mm -hmm. days um, and join or die. And then you have like the Gaston flag and the snake. Mm -hmm. Right. And I feel like people always take everything to like a political extreme these days. And that's one thing I'm not not about. But I believe it's because of like a historical context. Right. Do you want to touch on mm -hmm. that a little? Yeah. Well, I was looking for a name for the knife company. I didn't want it to be Stubblefield Custom Knives because two things. One, I just think the name's too long for something like that. Um, but also I I wanted to build the business into something where other people would be helping me make the knives. And I felt like it wouldn't maybe be that honest to just have my name when other people are doing it. So I wanted a brand name. And also that's something that's scalable or sellable or whatever in the future. Mm -hmm. um, but the, I was just sitting in a tattoo shop and there was a joiner die flag with a snake. And I was like, huh. I mean, it seemed like kind of too nuts because it's obviously out there. And, and I yeah. looked it up and nobody had really used it for like a um, company name. Mm -hmm. And it was America's first political cartoon uh, woodcut done by Benjamin Franklin, 1754. So before the revolution about the colonies needed to join and participate, especially about French expansionism and things like that. And it was just like the concept that these colonies, instead of being separate like city states, they needed to be kind of a cohesive whole. Yeah. And I had just come out of living in a community in Chicago for seven years. We all lived in the same building. We had homeless shelters and, um, you know, all kinds of different activities, ministries that we're involved in. We actually was, were a live-in intentional community. It was really difficult, but really enriching. Um, and so I came out of that. Instead of going to college or something, I just did that. And I feel like I learned a lot more than most of my friends at college. But, for sure. Um, more of those life lessons and stuff, but uh, community supported me. So I was going, join or die. Yeah, you can't make it on your own. You will like, if you're, if a branch is cut off, it withers and dies. So we're actually, nobody's self-made. That's not a thing. It's never a thing. We're all poured into by, you know, whether it's parents, mentors, people around us, friends, and even just the structure of the country, you know, the United States and the, the freedom and the awesome, you know, opportunities that we have here, all these things all come together to, to bring us to where we are. It's, and we will not get anywhere without our own effort, you know, but it's not just our effort. We get everybody out there that's like a millionaire, billionaire. I mean, they just want to write a book and tell you about how amazing they were at earning that money. Yeah. They didn't earn that money. They might've earned a few hundred thousand dollars, but the way they were able to stick that money in some kind of account, it grew itself, mm -hmm. but they, they tend to take credit for that. You got to just have that humility and go like, you know, I'm really fortunate, I'm blessed, I'm privileged. And so that takes us back to the humility of having to get together with other people to have that 
fulfilling life. And so that's your joiner type right yeah, there. For sure. And on the political side, so far it's not been used for anything specific. Yeah. Um, the Gadsden flag, mm -hmm. the Don't Tread on Me, was Tea Party. Yeah. Um, and But that's kind of like, people still like the license plate, but it's kind of a little passe at this point. And um, yeah, people want to make assumptions and be stupid jerks. It's up to them, but, yeah. but it is a tough <laughs> name and it has a, and it's it a conversation it, yeah. starter. So that's why I like it. For sure. Are there any special collaborations or partnerships um, y'all have had or you're excited to do in the future? Are there any like companies or brands that you like that would be a dream to partner with? Anything like that? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, haven't, um, I, I like, love asking that yeah. question because I think even for Ricky Hunting in the back of my mind, like yeah. I have like a hit list of like, yeah, like I'll be able to say like I made it when I'm working in Stone. So, wow. Stuff okay. Like that. Well, I think that there's some stuff like locally, like um, that have kind of like one of the things that I can't really do is give a lot of money, but a lot of times I can donate a knife for like a raffle. Yeah. So I really like doing stuff like Blue Sky Fund or um, the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and yep. things like that. Um, and so there's a lot of that outreach. I think that for me, I think that that outdoor access has actually become something that's been just naturally coming up. And so like some of the bigger organizations there would be cool. I've already been able to do classes for wounded warriors, which has nice. been amazing. Yeah. And um, also partner with some other, because veterans are attracted to the knife making as well. So we do that. Um, but yeah, I don't really know. I mean, um, there's there's the concept of like, what would be interesting? And then there's the concept of like, what would be the most beneficial for the brand or whatever. Yeah. Um, like, um, so I'm not really answering, I'm dancing around because I can't really think of anybody right now. But um you know, I um, I did a knife for Uncrate a few years ago, which is sort of like a lifestyle brand thing. The DWR has kind of been like and that that's thing. actually where I found like your like your name for the first mm -hmm. time. It was um, they had it on like a newsletter they'd sent out, so I always click on it and I would try to read their blogs. And um, they had they were selling like some of your knives, like some that you'd made. And then I was like, oh, it's in Richmond again, like very close. Yeah. Well, I've got a friend, uh, well, an acquaintance named Rusty that does a. Um, an apparel company called uh, Sidnaw Company, and he got to do something for Filson. And then recently I saw on Filson, Filson had a handmade burden trout knife on their website too. Mm -hmm. And so companies like that, that are really known for really high quality stuff, yeah. um, you know, being able to partner in the future with somebody like that has that legacy brand, but mm -hmm. wants to include you know, traditional makers in that would be really cool. Yeah. So I guess I'd say Phil, so even though I'm not like a big time, I've got a couple of pieces for them, from them, yeah. but um, things like that would be really cool because I mean, something like Bass Pro or something, it's like, it's all just, it's the Walmart of, yeah, you know. Essentially, yeah. You know, and I feel like those, that's when the quality starts mm -hmm. to loosen. So. But there are some companies out there that you can, you know, you can trust. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. It'd be really cool. I think that we could do knives with a lot of different outdoor brands. But I do think that in the um, that sort of nonprofit space, it's been really the best. Yeah. Um, there's just so many more popping up now. I've never done anything with Ducks Unlimited. I don't know why. Yeah. I just haven't had anybody in my direct or orbit. Yeah, for sure. But in all that kind of stuff, because I really think that the North American model and how we do things and how like the the private citizens like getting together with these clubs and different things like that to steward land because they want to hunt yeah. is is the works out the best yeah and so to kind of be able to do that with those types of things so you know um anyway i hear you something like that yeah for sure um i i was kind of curious um have you ever encountered any unusual or un unexpected uh custom orders you know throughout your time making knives or is there any 
one project that you were like, that was absolutely my favorite custom project to have done so far? That's a good question. I've got some really interesting things. Like I kind of had to cast like somebody's ashes into a thing to do a handle. And somebody had like a, a stainless like rib expander like implanted and then uh -huh. when they got that out we put it in the handle oh. some like you know implant type stuff just yeah. be stainless steel as far as i'm concerned yeah they had it washed off yeah for sure but, uh, <laughs> they, so some of that can be interesting those are kind of and people will bring me antler and wood from their property and mm -hmm. that's so that's special and then i love getting like yeah the, the historical reproduction i really do i grab this this is um, a sword that i've just finished i'm still working on the scabbard but um a fella came in and was like i want you know, a long sword that's got you know, these certain features. And so it's kind of got these double fullers nice. and it's got like a carved leather wrapped handle with silver wire inlay mm -hmm. and then kind of this cool, and I used an old anchor chain of wrought iron to forge these because like old swords, oftentimes wrought iron would be the the, the guard material, but you know, then you're high carbon. So it is under two pounds. Wow, I was like, like, you were holding it and I was like, oh, that's probably like five pounds, that's yeah. crazy. So the one thing about swords that people don't realize is that you had to be able to swing that thing for absolutely as long as you needed to swing that thing yeah. or you would die. <laughs> so swords are often lighter than people think because yeah. you have to be able to, to hold it and keep going. So, yeah. so this kind of project is just really fun when I'm in there grinding dozens of knives for production to be able to, to shift gears. Yeah. And, and do like, something, yeah. yeah. And then this it. one, actually, I had a custom order for a for like kind of a throwing cool like bearded axe. Yeah. And it's the second one I've done, so I should have known how to do it. But the steel that I started with, it wasn't enough, mm -hmm. and so it, it kind of came out a little smaller. And so I was able to make a you know, hatchet, you know, for either myself or if somebody, you know, had to have it. That's just kind of a practice. And so I'm more of a knife maker, but I'm getting more into some well, of those better. other things. Yeah. Yeah, so just being able to make a hatchet and go, hey, this is a good practice for my order, but now I'll have this. And I've learned the most from carrying my own stuff. So, uh, you know, for so long you're making knives, but you're going like, oh, I really need to sell this or whatever. But like, you really learn if you have any um, discrepancies or deficiencies in your design, you're not going to learn about those that much from people because they're not like a knife guy necessarily. They just have a knife. It's mm -hmm. good. But when I have it and I'm using it, I'm going, you know what? I should have done this a little bit thicker here or a little thinner there. And so when it, when I want to get into a new thing, like, oh, it'd be cool to make these hatchets. I need to make, I need to swing these things out there and see what's wrong with it. It looks cool, but is there anything in it that's not quite balanced or something like that? Yeah, you know? for sure. Um, so th th those are the exciting things. It's just that like growing and figuring out kind of these new processes um, because, you know, I'm growing in the marketing side of things. I'm growing in the wholesale side of things. So that, that's like a challenge and I'm kind of gamifying it and seeing like, how can I do this? And it still be interesting. But in the knife making world, these other types of things like swords and axes, which are not knives and they're not something a knife maker knows how to do. Mm -hmm. So somebody, when they first brought it to me, I said, look, I'll try it, but I'm, I don't really know how to do this. So thanks for working with me. Yeah. And then for me, Damascus steel is really fun, but like the really crazy mosaic Damascus, and just combining nine or 10 different bars of different patterns into the one thing um, has been kind of my personal obsession, learning how those things work. And also knowing that it's a small fraternity of people that even know how to make that in the world. 
Um, I mean, it's probably thousands, but out yeah, of the but amount, if you think about the population, yeah, it's like, yeah it's for nothing. sure, that's a small. And so, there. some of the things that I like to try to go is be, I'm attracted to them because I know they're not even among the knife making community, not something that's really done. Yeah. And so that's just trying to lean into some of the hardest stuff, high failure rates, things like that. One of the reasons people don't do it is because of the high failure rates okay. and stuff. But it's like you know what? We call it tuition essentially. You know what I mean? Every time you make a knife and, it, and something goes wrong, yeah. it's a lot of money down the drain. It's like, yep, that's that's the tuition. You just pay it over time instead of all the time. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Last question, because we are both about to go to the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Low Country Boil. They're a great group, and I'm excited to meet a lot of people there. Last question I have for you. What is your favorite currently? What is your favorite like wild game recipe? Ooh, favorite. You know, it's just really hard to get away from just like a venison backstrap, just really simple, okay. medium rare, and the cast iron skillet. Yeah. You know, I mean, ugh, whether you put it in medallions or do the whole thing, mm -hmm. um, we kind of do the thing where we sear it and throw it in the oven. Yeah. But it yeah. better be medium rare. Um, sure. And then, but I did make like uh, the last time I went duck hunting, I did make just duck a la orange. Nice. So just like okay. orange juice glaze in there, medium rare also. Okay. My kids thought it was. Did venison. you do that with just the duck breasts? Where did you well, um, I did. So I plucked that duck. I did the, um, I did that recipe with the breast with the skin on, mm -hmm. and then we used the legs and stuff. We kind of made, um, you know, we just braised those okay, uh, nice. different time. Um, and that is something that besides, I would say if I had to have the, the two top ones is, is learning how to do different things with different cuts. It used to be like, ah, oh, this venison is chewy when I sear it. And this venison is tender when I chew it's like, no, but you can take shanks, for instance, and braise those. And you're thinking, well, I'm cooking this too long, but it's like 250 or something in a Dutch oven. And then like, there are those, you know, all that silver's gonna like junk, you're trying to cut around it, it's terrible. Mm -hmm. You just braise it for a few hours, it comes out, it tastes, it's just so moist, all the gelatin and collagen that's breaking down that creates a sauce with maybe if you threw like typically garlic and rosemary or something, salt and pepper. Um, so learning, and discovering new cuts and new ways to have absolutely wonderful. So, you know, for me, it's in the venison world, but like just learning how to do that has been really awesome. Yeah. I will say I'm having a really hard time enjoying things like liver. Heart, okay. heart is yeah. great. So it I just... have like six livers in my freezer and I'm like, <sighs> one day I'll be brave enough. And I have like duck livers too, most of like... venison. And it's like, I'm like one day, like I'll I try because we... I'm eating a lot of heart, but yeah. it's like the liver isn't really something I've figured out yet. For me, heart tacos, like the street yes. tacos is, is the really, it's the best thing to do with heart. But, mm -hmm. um, I just keep, I, every year I try it and every year I just go like, I just don't like liver. I hate not liking food. Yeah. I, I consider it a mental weakness to have any squeamishness about food. It's yeah. like, I can't. I'll really eat anything. Yeah. But you know, it's like some stuff you just can't pretend to like because mm -hmm. you're just like, this just sucks. Yeah. So we've tried it, um, but we're going to keep doing it every year. And maybe like some of the other things that I used to not like, um, I'll be able to just one day have it just in the right way where it made yeah. me go, okay, I get it now. Yeah. So I'm really hoping to do that. Um, but yeah. So venison, all the all the new ways of doing it, but man, it's hard to be a backstrap. Yeah, for sure, especially like fresh. I don't understand why people wrap it with bacon. Okay, so I'm a it's... big. I feel like when people take wild game, and I, that's why I hunt, right? It's like the food aspect of it, and then they like just take bacon and they wrap it in bacon, mm -hmm. especially something as sacred as like a backstrap. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, why? Like, why are you mixing the pork in the first place? But like, why on a backstrap makes no sense to me. Yeah. And we stopped adding any fat to our venison ground. Yeah. We used to do it, 
And it was just like, that's what you do. Yeah. And every time I made, you know, every time we cooked it up in a skillet, there'd be all this fat in the skillet. And I'd be like, what if I just add the fat I need when I cook it? Like, so we just stopped. And you know, while we, another experiment that happens, we, we went to like Whole Foods and bought beef fat and then we ground that in and then we ran out. And so we just froze the rest of our venison lean. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't even tell that year, like when we were cooking it, which one it was. And so I was like, okay, we got to stop doing this. So now we just, we just grind it. Um, We grind it and freeze it. I know the like the real, like real ones are like, you know, grinding it every time they use it or whatever. But we do have some stuff this year. Um, where we, we didn't grind enough, so we might thaw out some stuff. Yeah. One last thing, I've got a deli slicer. I haven't really broken it out yet. Yeah. What I want to do is make a backstrap medium rare and then get it cold mm-hmm. and then make like basically roast beef for okay, sandwiches. Gotcha. Medium, yeah. Like, you know how like rare roast yep. beef? So I'll do that with, um, cause I love a good steak and cheese. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I'll do that with a backstrap. I'll like put it in the freezer for like, I think it's like 10 or 15 minutes and then I'll use a slicer to try to get it really thin. So that's why it's raw? Yeah. And then you and then I, I literally that. on like a flat top I'll like cook it like a yeah I'm literally cheese. thinking cold cuts here yeah yeah that looks yeah. yeah I wanted to do that with like wild turkey um do like with like brie and some I'll some chutney it. yeah like I just have to get person. enough wild turkey to experiment yeah with. I was gonna say this spring I definitely struggle a little bit so there's no turkey in my freezer mm. but I got an happens. arrowhead and uh oyster mushroom though when I was turkey hunting nice yeah I, I thought like, my first more uh, out so I was. I really? screamed. Yeah, that was, um, yeah, on some public land. I was, like, by myself, and I was just, like, there's no way this is happening. Yeah. Like, We have a chanterelle spot, so we, we go crazy with those. You know, I had some really vivid dreams after eating a lot of chanterelles. Really? Yeah. I, nice. I, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, it was two nights in a row. We had chanterelles two days in a row, and I was, like, I think I don't dream much, you know? And yeah. I was, I was, like, I think this is... This is the from that, this is I the truth. <laughs> All right. Well, Brent, thank you so much for your time. Um, tell everyone where to find you, social media, website, everything. Let's hear it. Yeah, joinerdiedknives.com. We're at uh, at joinerdiedknives on uh, Instagram uh, mainly and also on Facebook. And then we're trying to grow the YouTube channel. So yep. joinerdiedknives on YouTube. And we're trying to put content that's actually informative useful. and yeah. useful for people. Yep, for sure. All right. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Think I can fly. Think I can fly when I'm with you My arms are wide Catching fire as the wind blows I know that I'm rich enough for pride I see you being